Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about opening our eyes to a new view of life. I'm so glad you joined us today. It's been awesome to receive your feedback that these podcasts help you see and grow and gain energy from the messages that we share. And if there were any message we'd want you to hear today, it's that you're filled with immense potential, that there's great value in you and your future and your efforts to improve. And I believe deeply that you are where you are in life for a reason, for a purpose. And perhaps one purpose is to rise in your influence, leadership, and ability to live a happier life. So when you're done listening today, if you find some good ideas here, be sure to share this podcast with a friend. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about your breakthrough that is coming soon. 14-year-old John Smith was sleeping over at a friend's house one January evening near his home in St. Louis, Missouri. John had told his parents they would eat pizza and play video games. What John failed to mention was the boys had gotten bored and wandered two blocks away to Lake St. Louis, a small lake in the neighborhood. John's mother said they saw that the lake was iced over, so they got the harebrained idea to walk out onto the ice, squat down, take a photo of themselves, and then post it on Instagram. Well, the next morning, about 1130, the boys were getting ready to return home when they decided to make one last and fast trip to the lake. Dressed in only tank shirts and shorts, the boys headed out onto the ice, each step leading them further away from shore. They laughed and slid on their ability to walk on water. What the boys didn't realize is that while the sun was shining brightly and made the ice glisten like glass, the 50-degree temperatures were slowly melting the ice upon which they were standing. Now, the lake has an average depth of about 50 feet with a muddy bottom covered with silt and sludge. But the depth of the lake wasn't on John's mind as he and his friends skidded around and jumped up and down on the ice. On the shore that day was Ron. Ron saw the boys through his office window and yelled to them, Hey, you kids need to get off the ice. It's too dangerous out there. They acknowledged his warning and started to move from the ice. Now, John's mom shared this. Within moments, cracking noises thundered across the lake. The ice broke beneath John's feet and the water devoured my son. Josh, his friend, dropped to his hands and knees. And as he was grabbing Josh's hand, the ice fell away beneath him. Another friend who was further away immediately ran over to help his friends. Lying on his stomach, he tried to pull John out, but still fell in himself. The boys splashed frantically, desperately trying to escape the cold water's grasp. Ron Wilson glanced through his office window and saw the ice tear open and swallow the boys. Immediately, he called 911. As first responders headed to the lake, John's friend was able to grab onto a solid piece of ice, pull himself out, and half crawl, half slide towards the dock. John and Josh were still flailing in the water, bobbing up and down. John was pushing Josh onto the ice ledge while trying to get himself out as well. When the firefighters arrived, they saw only Josh with his head above water and weakly holding on to the thin ice. Having been in the water for 10 minutes by this point, his muscles were weakened, his coordination and strength had diminished, and his blood had begun to move away from his extremities towards the center of his body, his core, to keep him alive. The firefighters, dressed in ice flotation suits, grabbed a rescue board and headed towards the open water. Meanwhile, John 
was nowhere to be seen. And the hole in the ice had expanded to a larger portion in the center of the lake. So the rescuers had no idea where John may be under the water. The search area was getting bigger and bigger. The rescuers tethered ropes to reach Josh, who was still holding onto the ice, and helped him onto the rescue board. Then rescuers entered the water to find John. They used long poles with a hook, prodding and poking the distance between the surface and the lake bottom. By this time, John had been in the freezing water for more than 15 minutes, an enormous amount of time, and the hopes of finding and reviving him were slipping away with every minute. Now, there are cited stories of children and adults being revived after more than 15 minutes in the water, but not many. In fact, the majority of intact survivors are children ages two to four. The reason small children are more likely to survive is that they have a greater surface area to body mass ratio and therefore are believed to cool faster in water. And the cooling helps to preserve their vital systems after they've drowned. But As the 15-minute time in the water passed, the rescuers knew that the prospects of finding and reviving John were slim. John's mom told of one of the rescuers named Tommy. Suddenly, something in Tommy's spirit prompted and almost pushed him to move in a different direction, straight towards the ice shelf. So Tommy inched his way further from the middle and closer to the ice ledge. He poked down with his hook. Nothing. He moved within inches from the ice shelf, placing his back against it, and poked again. The hook hit something under the water that definitely felt different from a rock or mud. His heart pounded with hope. Don't get too excited, he thought. But he slowly started to lift his pole, and the hook resisted. He pulled hand over hand against the heavy resistance, willing himself not to lose what he'd hooked. As the pole rose slowly... Tommy caught a glimpse of something bright white. What he saw was John's shirt. By this time, John had been underwater for 20 minutes. They put John's frozen body onto a rescue board, and the guys on the dock pulled him back to shore. Everyone raced into action as they began CPR. John's skin had a grayish-blue tint. His body was limp. His nostrils and his mouth were full of lake debris. His hair was rigid with icicles. His fingers and extremities were stiff and unyielding. And his skin was so frozen that the paramedics were unable to get any life-saving device to stick to him. They threw a warming blanket onto him, stuck an IV in his arm, and began chest compressions. With their first push against his chest, John's lungs gave up large amounts of water. The paramedics worked to clear out his lungs and to get air back into his system, knowing that if they could force oxygen back to his heart and his brain, he could potentially kickstart his body and come back to life. Nothing worked. No pulse, no breath, no heartbeat. In the meantime, John's mother, Joyce, got a call from Josh's mother. She said, the kids were out on the ice. John fell through the water, and they just pulled him out. Joyce, he doesn't have a heartbeat. Joyce said, as I drove, I prayed. With each passing mile, I prayed. I thought it was time for God and me to have a serious conversation. Lord, I called out, you can't do this. You can't take my son. You can't. You gave him to us. When John's body arrived at the ER, his temperature read 88 degrees. The trauma care personnel saw with their eyes what they already knew. John Smith was dead and had been dead for at least 30 minutes. The monitors didn't bleep, beep, or whine. They were simply silent, showing no pulse, no breath, no heartbeat. 
but the ER doctor told the team to start CPR and grabbed a defibrillator with the paddles. Clear, he said as he stepped towards John and shocked his chest. No response. They began forcing oxygen into his body along with the necessary heated IV fluids to warm his blood and organs. When Joyce arrived at the hospital, it had been almost 40 minutes since she had gotten the phone call and she was escorted towards the ER. The room was full of medical personnel looking fatigued and dejected. John's body lay very still and was covered with tubes and blankets. A nurse stood at the head of the bed, squeezing a black bag, which was forcing air into John's mouth and lungs. The monitors were silent. An ER tech was intensely performing CPR. With a steady stream of tears washing over her face, she watched the medical staff work. John was dead. The doctor came to her, introduced himself quietly, and told her to talk to her son. This surprised her. Joy stepped forward, took hold of his feet, and through her sobs said, I believe in a God who can do miracles. Holy Spirit, I need you right now to come and breathe life back into my son. In that instance, everyone in the room heard, beep, beep, beep. John's heart monitor started. John's heart sprang back to life. John had received CPR for 43 minutes. He'd been dead for more than an hour, but somehow his heart was beating again. And even though his heart was beating, the rest of his body was not yet revived. He was life-flighted to a larger hospital where a doctor, an international hypothermia and drowning expert, worked. He had worked on multiple cases, and he knew no one ever survived this kind of catastrophic experience to this extent before. Well, long story short, with the doctors and the hospital's help, it took days and weeks, but John would recover. Now, John broke through the ice. When it gave way, he plummeted into an icy, almost grave that should have cost him his life. It wasn't his fault. Yes, they were on the ice on a sunny day, but they were also young teenagers unaware of the full danger. So what happened to him is similar in a way to what happens often to us. We, through our ignorance or through nothing at all, end up someplace in life that we would rather not be. But John's real breakthrough wasn't in the ice or icy water. But when his mother put her hands on him and prayed, and John broke through the darkness of death and returned to live his life and become a young man of destiny, you too can break through the things that hold you back, the circumstances you didn't or did create, and break through to find that there on the far side of your difficult experiences lies a new you, even destiny. Now, it may seem that lately you're not getting many good breaks in life. And for some of you, you're needing a small breakthrough. Become a better leader. Leave behind a few bad habits. Get the discipline to work your business in the right way every day. And some of us need a major breakthrough. Find ourselves again. Overcome our depression. Overcome a major habit. Become a person of joy. Change a job or deal with big health challenges that have come our way. Small or big, you can breakthrough. So how do you break through to a new you? Well, Andy Warhol said, they always say time changes things, but you actually have to change them yourself. And if you want to break through, it's not going to happen by chance alone. You have to do it yourself. It takes a purposeful march. Yes, God is waiting with what is needed, but like Joyce, 
you need to be breakthrough minded of the mind that things are about to change if you will pursue that course to real change. And here's the thing. Every breakthrough requires a break with. Every breakthrough on a habit requires a break with the old. Every discipline found in how you run your day requires a break with the procrastination and excuses. Every miracle breakthrough found in you requires a break with the doubt you've been carrying and embracing the faith needed to change. As the scripture says, if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not the whole body. Maybe you'll have to give up shopping to get out of debt, give up certain friends to be around positive people, give up time at work so you can be with your children more, or leisure time so you can exercise and be more physically fit. So here's the question. Are you willing to sacrifice who you are for who you could be? Because you were not put here on this earth to just exist. Your mission, your identity is to grow, expand, and live that full and happy life. And this is why your identity, how you see yourself, your sense of self is so important. You see, over time, we build an identity whether we're doing it on purpose or not. As a young man or woman, as you grew older, you began to confirm your identity. If someone said to you, you weren't a good student, that became part of your identity. As you grew into adulthood, you carried it with you and created new beliefs about yourself. And along the way, your identity started to take root. Your limitations became part of you. And because they were so ingrained, you weren't even sure where they came from. And by the time you were old enough and able to question your identity, you were living with the identity you had adopted at a time when you didn't have a choice. But when we open our eyes and see ourselves in a new way, put on a new identity, it's like setting a new threshold in life. We break through the old setting of life and rise to a new. One author described it like this. Your identity is the force that governs your life and regulates your results. Think of it like a thermostat. Your internal thermostat sets the conditions of your life. Now, you walk into a room, and if it's too hot or cold, you look for the thermostat to adjust the temperature to the temperature you'd like. And it doesn't matter what the external conditions are. The temperature can be 100 degrees outside, but if the thermostat is set for 75 degrees, it kicks on and the air conditioning cools down the temperature and regulates the environment. The same applies when it's 30 degrees outside. The thermostat kicks in and warms your surroundings to 75 degrees. Well, your life works exactly the same way. If you're a 75-degree person, you turn on the air conditioners of your life and cool it back down to what you think you're worth. And this is what happens every time your results begin to exceed your identity. You unconsciously turn on the air conditioners of your life and cool it back down to what you believe you deserve. And the opposite is also true. If things are too cold, you turn up the thermostat and the temperature rises to meet the set temperature. Much like a thermostat, your identity regulates not only your self-worth, but your actual life each day. You know, my chief of staff recently decided to set her thermostat in life by deciding to return to school after 20 years away and get her master's degree. She reset her thermostat. And you should see how her energy, her desire, her drive, and her life has broken through from the person she has been to the person she's becoming. 
all just from setting her thermostat in life a little higher. Now think about your fitness identity. Let's suppose you lost 20 pounds at one time in your life, and despite being armed with the best weight loss recipes and workout regimens, a year later you added all that weight back, and you're right back where you started. That's because your fitness identity thermostat was set at 75 degrees. It means you're comfortable carrying 20 extra pounds. And try as you might, you'll always drift back to that 75-degree setting. You can take all the actions with diet and exercise, but if your internal thermostat is not set for success and remains at 75 degrees, eventually you'll drift back to your old thermostat setting by eating the wrong food or falling out of a solid workout regimen. You'll use external circumstances to find ways to cool you back down to what you believe you're worth. Your brain works on what it's told. So, many of us don't tell our brains what to do. When you tell your brain what you want to attract, it will design internal messages that will feed the good parts of you and manifest themselves in a new identity over time. T.F. Hodge said, What surrounds us is what is within us. So, what is your internal setting? And remember, again, every breakthrough requires a break with. If you want room in your life for new and productive relationships, you probably need to take out a few relationships that don't align with your new identity. You are a reflection of the people you associate with. If you want to change your weight or physical condition, you're going to break with a few things. Instead of sitting, you walk. Instead of browsing the pantry, you walk. Instead of a long lunch, you walk. In other words, you fill your life with the activity that leads to the breakthrough you're seeking. Remember, they always say time changes things, but you actually have to change them yourself. Now, there's a simple principle related to breakthroughs that's important to remember. In order to stop doing a thing, start doing something else. We don't need to break bad habits as much as we need to replace them. Replacing poor behavior with something else is easier than just resisting. For example, let's say you've had a hard time dieting. Start exercising. When you experience the effort of working off the calories, you'll be more likely to control eating calories. Let's say you're an overly negative person. It's a habit you developed over time. Start complimenting others and purposefully seeking positivity about others or your situation. When you focus on the positive, you can see that it will push out the negative. Next, our breakthrough requires we open our eyes to the fact that we cannot do everything by ourselves. God can and does play a role. Other people play a role. And the thing we have to realize is that God's thermostat for us is likely set higher than we imagine. And he's likely telling us through his word or other people that we can rise, which may seem like an impossibility, something that may take a miracle. Joel Osteen said, in the scripture, a government official came to see Jesus. His little son was very sick and close to death. He had traveled a day's journey to get to Galilee, and he asked Jesus if he would pray for his son. Jesus looked at him and said, you can go back home. Your son will live. Now, this man could have been a little offended thinking, wow, I came all this way, and he didn't even take time to pray. But no, his attitude was, if he says my son is going to live, if he says healing is on the way, then I believe healing is on the way. He turned around and went right back home. When he got close, one of his assistants came running out saying, 
Good news, your little boy is well. He was so relieved and so grateful, he asked what time everything changed. They said, this all happened yesterday about one o'clock in the afternoon. That was the exact time Jesus told him that his boy would live. Well, just like this man, there are promises God has spoken to you. Things that he's put in your heart that you know are going to happen. Dreams, goals, divine connections, turnarounds. The moment God spoke it, he released it. It's already in your future. And it's just a matter of time before you walk into it. When Jesus told this man, your little boy will live, the scripture says he took Jesus at his word and departed. Walking back home, he could have thought, I don't think it's going to happen. He didn't even pray. I think I'm wasting my time. And that would have stopped the miracle. We have to do like this man. Take God at his word. Make a decision. You're not going to go around worried, doubting, discouraged, thinking it's never going to happen. No. Stay in faith, knowing what God promised you has already been released. It's already en route, headed your way. Now, I think this way of living is breakthrough living, where you stay in faith. You adopt the view that God has for you in your life. You know, another scripture says, God will hasten his work to perform it. He is ready and anxious for you and me to turn and put on a new identity of a person of faith who has set the thermostat in their life to a level where he can do his work in you. Here's the thing. No matter how difficult things may be, how broken you are, where you are today, or what anyone says, you matter. Know that your best days are ahead. Your breakthrough is on the way. Don't be discouraged if things are not working out right now. A breakthrough is waiting for you. It's waiting for you to get up and walk. And soon you'll find that you can walk away from the circumstances you never thought you could leave behind you. At first, he wasn't worried. He'd had minor problems with his vision in the past. But on this day, high-altitude climber Beck Weathers couldn't even see his own feet. What made his temporary vision loss potentially deadly was the fact he was climbing in the pre-dawn darkness at 27,500 feet on his final push to the top of Mount Everest. His hope was that with the rising of the sun, his vision would return. Eye surgery 18 months earlier had altered his corneas, and the effect of high altitude had rendered him blind. So he stepped aside to let the other climbers pass in hopes that his vision would improve and he could continue his climb. Weathers, a pathologist from Dallas, had spent most of his adult years obsessed with climbing. He'd put climbing ahead of his family, time with his children, and other priorities in life. In his early 30s, he battled depression, and he fed his dark obsessions by losing himself in one extreme climb after another. Now, the team of climbers joining Beck included John Krakauer, a Japanese climber, Yasuko Namba, guide Andy Harris, and six others. They started their final summit bid in earnest on May 9th after negotiating the Kombu Icefall and the 4,000-foot Lhotse face. For the final two days, the climbers would use bottled oxygen full-time. At these altitudes, without oxygen, your body deteriorates in a matter of hours. So on May 10th, the plan was to leave advanced camp early in the morning hours, thereby allowing for a summit attempt around noon and giving them time to safely return to their tents. Beck was feeling strong in the early morning hours as he fell in line with his teammates, but after his vision faded, he told his guide, Rob Hall, that he would wait a few hours and follow them. 
Rob agreed as long as Beck promised if anything went wrong, he would wait for Hall to return from the top so they could descend together. Beck agreed, not knowing that promise would almost seal his fate. Well, Hall's team and the other climbers ascended that day, but they were delayed by one mishap after another, and they arrived atop Everest hours after the predetermined turnaround time. Further down the mountain, Beck's vision never returned, and as climber after climber returned from the top, they passed Beck, asking him if he wanted to join them. But Beck stayed true to his promise and waited for Hall to return. Beck waited until late afternoon, by which time he was sinking fast. His oxygen was gone. The effects of hours at high elevation where the oxygen is deathly thin left him shivering, weak, and sinking into apathy. What Beck didn't know was Hall was still on top of Everest with serious problems and would never make it off the mountain. Beck finally relented and joined a group of climbers in their descent. As they came within an hour's walk of the safety of the tents, a massive blizzard deteriorated around them, leaving them in complete whiteout conditions. The team was quickly disoriented in the storm, and with winds of over 100 miles an hour, there was clear danger of walking off the 7,000-foot vertical face to a certain death. By this time, Beidelman, the guide of the small group, knew they were lost and couldn't risk wandering blindly on the mountain, so he ordered the climbers to stop. Beck, Namba, and three other climbers would wait in the storm, while the guide would find the tents and send back help. Once they stopped climbing, Beck and the others huddled in the relentless blizzard, shivering and freezing to death. By the time help arrived, Namba had passed into unconsciousness, and Weathers was unresponsive. Beck had inexplicably taken off his gloves and mask and fallen face first into the snow. Thinking Beck and Namba were too far gone, the guide helped the other climbers back to camp, leaving Beck for dead. However, the next day, about four in the afternoon, 22 hours after the storm had stranded him and the others, a miracle occurred. Beck opened his eyes. He said, at first I believed I was warm and comfortable in my bed at home. But as my head cleared, I saw my gloveless hand directly in front of my face, a gray and lifeless thing. He slowly began to comprehend where he was, that he was alone on the mountain and there was no help coming. If he was going to get off the mountain, it was entirely up to him. He struggled to his feet, dropped his pack, and determined that if he would simply walk no matter what, and if he took a misstep and fell, so be it. He would keep moving until he fell down, until he couldn't walk anymore or fell off the mountain. Beck marched directly into the wind and miraculously found high camp. As he walked into camp, half dead, arms frozen in front of his body, the climbers in camp couldn't believe their eyes. In the hours and days that would follow, one miracle after another would get back off the mountain and to a hospital. He would eventually lose both hands, part of his face, and feet to frostbite. He would endure numerous operations and reconstructive surgery. What were his feelings about his trip to Everest? He says, people ask me whether I'd do it again. And the answer is, yes. Even if I knew exactly everything that was going to happen to me, I would do it again. That day on the mountain, I traded my hands for my family and for my future. I had a breakthrough in my thinking and priorities. And for the first time in my life, I have peace. Now, it was a little less than two years after his return from Everest that I met Beck and Peach Weathers. It was an amazing experience for me. 
We ate lunch and talked, and they openly shared the troubles they'd had in their life and marriage before Beck's trip to Everest. They talked of Beck's failures to give time to his family, and Beck told me that God gave him a gift, an unspeakable gift, to open his eyes to what was most important, a breakthrough to a new person that he was to become. Now, just like Beck, you and I may be in a bit of a storm, but it's up to us to stand up and walk. And despite the fear or the habits that we carry or the worries that we have, remember, they always say time changes things, but you actually have to change them yourself. It is time for you and me to walk more deliberately, to set our thermostat at a higher setting, and to let the breakthrough God has planned for us happen. Remember, John, he broke through the ice, but he also broke through and found his life again. You and I can find our life again. We can return to the identity that best suits who we are and can become. And if you have something you need to break with, decide today that you will set it aside and replace it with something more suitable to who you really are. Remember Beck, stand up and walk and watch. You will find a breakthrough to the life and person you're destined to become. Most of all, thanks for joining us today. And be sure to join us next week as we seek to find new ways to open our eyes to who and what we can become. Music.